Amen. Two encouraging words. Turn with me, if you will, again to 1 Kings 17. Well, I didn't intend to keep going in 1 Kings 17, but when I got to studying to preach, that's what happened. And so to give a little bit of a review of last time we met um, and talked about this, um, it was the last half of 1 Kings 16 and the very first verse of 1 Kings 17, which paints a very, very bleak picture of what's happening in Israel. Um, with Jeroboam and the split of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, um, Israel has just spiraled into idolatry. They don't follow God's commands anymore. They don't honor Him. Whenever the name of God is spoken, it's like it's a small thing. It's like God's no big deal anymore. And along comes this king that's bad, um, Omri, and it says that he did more evil than the sight of any other king that had come before him, but he didn't keep the title for long because in 1630 it says, Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And he went and married uh, Jezebel and instituted Baal worship, and the nation just seems to be spiraling into apostasy, and it seems like that somehow all of this evil together, the collective force of this evil, has somehow bound up the word of God. We're not hearing a word from the Lord. Evil's going unchecked. It looks like God has lost control. But you start to see hints of this, that this is not the case. Verse 34, in the days of Hiel, the Bethlehite, he built Jericho. And you remember the promise, cursed is the man who builds Jericho. This is about how much people were thinking of God in those days. He looks across there. He sees a perfectly good piece of land. He says, why are we not doing that? And somebody says, well, you remember God, after uh, Joshua, God said um, that you'll lay that foundation with your firstborn, that that man's going to be cursed. And he scoffs, I'm going to build Jericho. That's not going to happen. But it did. He laid the foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. It's quite the text, isn't it? It comes out of nowhere. And then in verse 17, in the midst of all this darkness, no word from the Lord, evil seems to be rampant and unchecked, all of a sudden a man shows up. We don't hear much about him because the point is not the man. And he has this announcement. He comes up, and you'll remember from last time, Baal, who's kind of the new god in town for Israel. Everybody's kind of enthralled with Baal. Baal was in charge of storms. That was his big deal. His thing as a god, little g, was to send storms. Well, Elijah shows up and says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. One little man walks up into this massive country that's overrun with idolatry and people who could care less what God says and says, You just got served notice. God is shutting this entire operation down until further notice. Not only is it not going to rain, but just so that you're clear that Yahweh is superior, there's not going to be any dew. Moisture is gone until further notice. 
you get a sense of the glory of God. The majesty of God that can walk up into this nation that looks like it's completely out of control and that you couldn't keep, you couldn't keep them together with chains and he just, just with a word shuts down the whole operation. That's glory. That's the kind of God you can bow your knee before. I love this summary in Daniel 4, 34. We read it last time. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Uncontested sovereignty, glory. I mean, this is the kind of thing that just makes you put your hand over your mouth. Glory. And I review that because the theme through that section and the theme through 17 is the word of the Lord. And so what I wanted to try and do is to give a little feel for the glory of the throne that stands behind that word. It's easy to get lost in little text and like just little one-line text here and there. And if you're not careful, what happens is, is, is this, this book, the words in this book, they become isolated from the person of God. And they're just kind of these things out there. But what you need to realize is that every word that God has spoken that we have in the Bible, it has a throne that stands behind it that is uncontested. It comes from a person, not just a person, the person, the God of all the universe that no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? The, the most simple promise that they teach you in vacation Bible school has more force and power in it to, to stop the whole world. Think of that. Think of just one little verse having more power than all of the evil the world has to offer. Because it's got a God behind it. Not just one of these little, not just one of these little Canaanite gods that comes up and shows up on the scene, but a God who can walk on the scene and says, I'm shutting down rain. I'll let you know when it's going to rain again. And he walks off. That's what stands behind every verse of the Bible. And so here's what I want to do tonight. We're going to read a little bit here in 1 Kings 17. And what I want to do is highlight from our text this thought right here. That God invites you to a simple life of daily trust in his word. In the midst of all of the glory and with a feeling of the might and the throne that stands behind every promise. I want you to know what is my duty before him? I mean, there's so many things to do. There's all these books saying, here's the things that you should be doing. And then you get these people saying, well, here's the things that you should be doing. If you really want to be a Christian, this is what you really need to be doing. How do you make sense of it all? What are we called to? Are we called to watch over a million things? I think this text teaches, and I think the Bible bears it out, that we are called to a simple life a daily trust in God. And let me give you the, uh, there's three principles that I think come out of here. I'm going to give them to you right now. I'm going to highlight them again, but I'm scared I'm not going to be clear, and so I want to make sure that you get them. So I figured this was the safest way to do that. 
Here are the three principles that come, uh, that come out in this text. One, the simple life of daily trust in God is not just for ideal circumstances. That's important because there's a lot of things that only work in ideal circumstances. There's, you know, there's flowers that, man, they're amazing flowers, but if it's not the right climate and the right soil, you are out of luck. There's all kinds of products that look awesome, and you realize that the only circumstances that they work in are the ones that you don't need them for. Like, it's got to be perfect, but God's word is not that way. Number two, the simple life of daily trust in God starts with a good argument. Talk about applying the word to yourself. And number three, the simple life of daily trust in God often requires the first step to be a blind step of faith. Those are the three principles. So let's talk about this. Number one, God invites you to a simple life of daily trust in his word. Let's start reading in verse two. The word of the Lord came to him after he walks up and makes this announcement saying, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens. You, listen, to, listen to the theme of the word of God here. There's so much about I have commanded, or the word of the Lord, or the word of God. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. Uh, kids, uh, you know, you, you may have, you've probably heard this story in Bible times before, but sometimes we can read this like it's a cartoon that we've seen, like somebody came up with this neat story, but it kind of never happened. But you've got to realize something. There was a man one time that went and stood for truth, and God said, I want you to go over to this creek. That's what a brook is. It's really just a creek. That's what we call it. So he goes over to this creek by water. He says, I want you to go over there. You can drink from this creek, and there's going to be birds that bring you food. I mean, imagine if you look up, and here comes this big flock of black birds, and it brings you food every morning and every evening. That's how powerful God is. God can make birds do whatever he wants to. God can make a bird go get food and bring it to somebody who doesn't have food. That's amazing. That's the kind of God we're talking about here. And that's what God tells Elijah. And sure enough, that's what, that's what uh, is happening. There's a lot of lessons in this right here. There's so many things that I think that are being taught here. But the one that I want to draw out is simply this about a simple life of daily trusting God. God essentially sends Elijah to seminary with two classes each day with ravens. In the morning, the ravens come with meat and bread, and the lesson of this is this. God's word never fails. And all day long, Elijah sits there and thinks about that thought. God's word never fails. And then Right about the time evening comes, here comes this big flock of black birds back carrying bread and drink for review. There's no new lesson here. They drop the bread off, and what's the lesson here? God's word never fails. And so all evening long, Elijah sits there and thinks about God's word never fails. And you know what happens? 
He gets up in the morning and he does the whole thing all over again with the same lesson. He stays in God's school. It says right here, it says in verse 7, it says it happened after a while. Right? This is not just like a little summer quarter. Like he's, he's sitting here in God's school of daily trust for a while. And don't we need that? Isn't it so tempting in the Christian life that you want to get on to the, quote, more important stuff, the stuff that's interesting, the stuff that has a little bit more flair, that it's a little bit more fun to talk about? But the simple fact is this. You're never going to get anywhere in life until you start at this foundation of learning day by day to trust what God says. Simple trust in God. It's like, come on, tell us something profound. I mean, give us, some, give us some truth. We drove all the way out here. Isn't this Christianity 101? And yet at the end of your life, isn't this what the, most, the greatest saints, we read their biographies, we speak, to him, we speak to them, we hear their stories, and is this, not simple, is this simple trust in God not the theme? Let me read you one really quick, quick here. Um, by Robert, uh, Robert Bruce, I don't know if you've heard of him, but it illustrates this so well. And skipping on, he's talking about the Phoenician widow we'll meet in just a moment. Um, I have to read that part too because it's, it's so encouraging. He says, most of us believers can never get more sophisticated than this Phoenician widow. Some of us may know more apologetics or philosophy or theology than she ever did. But at the end of the day, we find that faith consists in leaning all of our weight upon the mere word of God. You can stuff your head with theology, or you can be the Christian converted five minutes ago, and at the end of the day, both of those people got to go believe a Bible verse. That's encouraging. For all the additional light we may have, we still step over the edge of life onto the brink of eternity with nothing to support us except some word like, quote, the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. You learn all this stuff and at the end of, the life, at the end of your life you're quoting John 6. Listen to this. We can do no better than old Robert Bruce at his last breakfast when he divined his master was calling him and ask his younger daughter to, quote, cast me up the eighth book of Romans. His eyes failed, but his memory held as he repeated the latter part of that chapter. And when he had recited verses 38 through 39, he ordered his daughter to, quote, set my finger on those words. And here's his quote. I die, he said, believing in these words. Simple life of daily trust in God. Here's a saint at the end of his life. I mean, a giant in the faith. Body so broken down he can't even see anymore. So he asked his daughter, put my, put my finger on, on those words we just read. He said, and his last words, I die trusting that Bible verse. But it's not just trusting a Bible verse, is it? It's trusting the God behind that Bible verse. Because that's not just like a little piece of ink on a page it was put somewhere that could get burned in a fire. It's, it's bigger than that. and It's a person. And for many Christians, it's easy, if you get dull enough, that it does just become words on a page. 
and you lose that sense of daily trust in God, and you're just trying to walk with Bible verses all the time. There's a whole God behind those verses. There's a throne of glory that stands behind a verse that says, nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. And you lean all your weight on it. The God behind that verse and the truth that it is teaching. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I think of that song probably more than any other, and it's one of the first songs I ever learned, but I keep going back to it because I can get as sophisticated as I want, but at the end of the day, if I'm not walking in faith in Christ, I get depressed, nothing's working out, I get in a fog, I get more unbelief, and that at some point, by the grace of God, something happens and some verse comes zipping back across your mind and God illumines it to you, and the Spirit makes it real, and all of a sudden you say, what on earth have I been doing? And you take hold of that verse in faith and says, I'm going to believe that instead of what I feel. And you go walking down the path of simple trust in God. Here are some principles from this one overarching truth. One, the simple life of daily trust in God isn't just for ideal circumstances. This is where the story starts to get very, very interesting. Verse 7, it says, It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, which is a side note. I think that's interesting. The word of the Lord didn't come to him until after the brook's dry. Like we usually want a word, you know, when the water level starts getting about an inch down, it's like, all right, I'm going to need a word soon, really, really soon. Well, the brook is dry, and then God comes and speaks to him. And you've got to be willing to go, you've got to be willing to keep your mouth shut in that time. You've got to be willing to trust God. That then really just stuck out to me. It says, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Now that is a problem. That's a big problem. Let me read you why that's a big problem, and you see if you can pick this up, of where this land of, of Sidon was. Back up in 16, reading about Ahab, the worst king that has ever been in Israel so far, in verse 31 it says, It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidons. God just said, go to Sidon. I'm going to provide for you there. God is sending Elijah into the heart of paganism. Like there could be no worse spot for Elijah to end up than right in the middle of Sidon with this Baal-worshipping king. He sends him to the heart of paganism. But we need to get back to the text because it's going to get worse which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose, and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. 
Here's, here's his mighty provider. Imagine this. You walk up to the city. You're looking around. I know this is a widow. God must have blessed her. Maybe she had an independently wealthy husband, and she has all this provision, and she probably has this nice room, and she's laid up with servants. And you see this other widow who's gathering sticks. And so you're looking around. You're looking past her, and lo and behold, you realize, here's my provision. He comes up, and his miracle Needs a miracle. She's worse off than he is. Listen to this. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. The water she could bear. But asking for bread, you know how bad that hurts? I don't know if you've ever been in that spot. Or somebody asks you for something, and you just don't, and it brings up something that hurts. It brings up a need that just hurts. Well, this hurts, because it's not just her, it's her son. This is not easy. And it's easy to read over this like this is a story that happened in two seconds. There's history here. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. Only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah goes to Paganville to find his provider and he finds her eating her last supper. She's going to gather a few sticks. They're going to make one last cake. They're going to eat it and they're going to die. And here's where God has sent Elijah for this provision. This is remarkable. The circumstances couldn't look any more bleak. But the lesson here is profound and simple and it will help you if you hold on to it. God's word does not lose its power in difficult circumstances. It's not like those flowers that only grow in certain climates and products that only work in certain light or in certain temperatures or things like that or they're useless. God's word is not bound by anything. And here's the thing. As you go on in the Christian life and people ask you, how are things going? And you say, you know, it's, things are going all right, but it's been a difficult season. And then a little while later, somebody asks you and you say, you know, there's been some things encouraging, but it's been a difficult season. Well, how many seasons does it take until you start to say, you know what, we may be having a difficult life here. And isn't that what Christ said? With great difficulty, you're going to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Not only are you having to deal with a falling world like the rest of humanity, but you've had your conscience awakened. You've got demons fighting at you, which is why I never bought the whole deal of all of these other religions. Look at how dedicated they are. You know, look at how much they read their holy books and things like that. Look at you pathetic Christians. Well, if you had every demon in hell standing outside your bedroom trying to keep you in bed, it'd probably be different. We, we live in a war. We see things. We hurt more deeply than anybody else on the face of the earth because we look at things honestly. We know what sin is. We know about wrath. We know the coming judgment. We know forgiveness that is there if a person would just humble themselves, but they won't do it. And it breaks your heart. 
And you find that Christ is dead on. Through many difficulties, we will have to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Don't be surprised. You will have tribulation. But I love this part. Take heart, I have overcome the world. There it is. It's like it can get black, and it's going to get black. It's, you know, hard times are not finished yet. There are many difficulties in the Christian life. It's the life that God has called us to. But there's no difficulty on the face of the earth. There's no spot that's so tight that you get yourself back so far into a corner that a simple resting on the shortest, smallest, lightest, most non-esteemed verse in the Bible by the world, if you just take that little verse and you believe it, all the power of God stands behind you. God's word is never bound. You can do a mass evil, put it in there, and then you got these people trying to build Jericho, and sure enough, here comes the word of the Lord mowing the whole thing down. He's not bound. Number two, principle number two, the simple life of daily trust thrives on having a good argument. Now, you can all go and say, Our, the preacher last night was telling us we need to argue more. <laughs> That's exactly what happens in this text. I want you to hear it. Verse 13, it says, Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go. Do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first, and bring it out to me, and afterwards you may go make one for yourself and for your son. For, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the bowl of the flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. This is important. Do you see what's happening here? He gives her a command, a couple of them. He says, don't fear and go do this because God has said something. That's an argument. Here's the reason why we're doing this. God has said something. And you see this through the Bible. You see it when people have promises. And you see it, which I I love this. I have come to appreciate this more and more, of times when people would just argue from the general character of God. It's not necessarily that they're quoting a specific Bible verse. They just know who he is. And he's truth. And he's always going to be that way. So if you know the way he is in one circumstance, you can know... This is the God I'm always going to deal with. And so in Psalm 42, you have the psalmist who's not just arguing this for other people. He starts arguing to himself. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in the Lord, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance. I know God. God does not abandon His people. Do you see the reasoning? He's arguing this stuff. God doesn't abandon His people. It's going to get black. It's going to get hard. Trials are going to come, and they may almost suffocate me. But I know at the end of the day, God is going to show up and rescue me. And it may be in death, but it will be sweet. He will rescue me. Don't be downcast, soul. Hope in God. He'll help my countenance. You argue with yourself. That is so important because it's so easy to treat the Bible and to treat the Word of God like a medicine bottle that sits up there on the cabinet doing you no good. 
You can go get a script filled at the pharmacy for, you know, some sort of antibiotic or something for an infection that you've got, and it can sit right there on your shelf all day long. But if you don't take the lid off and take one and another as scheduled, it's not going to help you. It doesn't matter. You can amass the whole room full of amoxicillin and nothing is going to happen. And there's a danger in treating the word of God that way. That's why James is so quick to warn, don't just be deceitful hearers. You'll deceive yourself. It feels like you did something spiritual just because you heard it. Be a doer of the word. There's an Old Testament professor who's a godly man that tells a story of when he was in class um, and he went to a school that was pretty much covered up by liberalism, people who don't you know, believe that the Bible is true and things like that. And someone asked one of his professors about Romans 5, and his professor launched into one of the best, most eloquent explanations of Romans 5 that he had ever heard in his life. I mean, it was amazing. Just hearing the word, it was, he said that the place was just captivated. And some of the students that were unbelieving, one of them got outraged and said, Professor, when did you start believing, when did you start believing Paul? He says, who says I believe Paul? I'm just telling you what he says. Isn't that scary? It's like there are guys who can explain the Bible probably better than any of us. And it has no power in his life. It's what it says in Hebrews. It says the word did not profit them because it was not united with faith. But don't let past unbelief discourage you in this. It's like, oh man, how many Bible verses have I not believed? I mean, you can get real. I mean, we could just start, we could start dragging some trash out, talking about how much we failed and how few Bible verses we believe. Or it's very simple. Ask God to bring a verse to your mind. Go, sir, God, I want to meet with you and I want to hear from you. And when he gives you a verse, you walk in it. That's the way forward. A simple life of daily trust thrives on having a good argument. Apply the word. Take that word and apply it. Number three, finally, the simple life of daily trust often requires the first step to be a step of blind faith. Did you notice this? Back in verse 13, he says, Do not fear. Go do as you have said. You know, you know what he's talking about. He's saying, okay, go make, go make the cake, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and your son. Does that strike you as odd? Well, let me just ask you this. If you were breaking ground with God's word in a new place, would you ask the first potential convert to do something? To, would you do this to somebody? It's like, hey, uh, there's not a lot of food around here. I'm a representative of God. Why don't you make me some first, and once I'm fed, you will we'll deal with it from there. But that's not what Elijah is doing, is he? I don't, I don't see any unbelief. I don't get any hint. The, the text never hints at Elijah's unbelief. There's no other text that comments on this and hints at Elijah's unbelief. It's something that God is doing through him, calling her to a blind step of faith. And you've got to feel this. I mean, you've got to feel this because it's one thing for God to come up and say, make some bread, make your little last piece of bread and give it to me if I'm just standing there. But she's got a son, 
She's got a son behind her who's hungry, and there's one cake, and there's three people, and the man that represents God just said, this is the thing that you need to do with it. And it wasn't her, and it wasn't her son. You could see how she could get a little put out with the situation. It's like, well, you're the one who had ravens flying to you. Why don't I eat that, and then you believe God? I mean, you're the prophet here, right? You're the one who's seen all this stuff. But here we get, oh, we get an illustration of the print. We get an illustration of the big truth, so clear and so simple. And oh, it's the power of the Christian life. Listen to what it says about her. Verse 15. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. No argument, nothing. She went and she did. The man of God said, here's what God is telling us to do. All right, I'm going to go do that. She steps out in faith with nothing but a hungry son and a bare promise of God. And she goes walking in what God has told her to do. And that's often what you have to do. I quote that verse a lot, but it's helped me so much where it says in Psalms, he says, I will run the way of your commandment and you will enlarge my heart. You get a feeling for what's going on within there. He's not feeling it. There's something in his life. There's something going on. And when he looks at that, all it is is a bare command. It probably just feels like words to him. But that's what's so encouraging about God. You're not just dealing with a bare book. You're dealing with a person who is, I mean, love, we can't even go into it tonight. And so even when you come to him and you say, Lord, all that feel, all this verse that I know I need to believe feels like is a word on the page. I know it's more than that. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to walk in faith. And I'm going to believe somewhere along the way, you're going to make the lights come on. You're going to bring the reality that I don't have. I love that verse in Isaiah, let him who sits in darkness and has no light trust in the name of his Lord and rely on his God. Sitting in total blackness, holding on to the truth of God for dear life. So let me ask you a question. Do you always need to know the next step? Do you always need to know how it's going to end before you trust God? Do you always need an explanation? Like, well, I know this is going to be, you know, I've been shown this is going to work out for this person, or I can see how it might work out this way, or this, that, and the other. Or have you learned to simply set off knowing that God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain? And we don't have to have all the answers right now. The conclusion of this last verses, two verses are wonderful. And it points out this. The only people with true sustenance are those who daily trust the word of the Lord. Listen to this. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he... And her household, there's that poor son of hers, awful mom, going to go follow the Lord and not give that poor kid that cake. She'd have given that kid that cake, he'd be dead. But do you hear the text? She went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she 
and he and her household ate for many days. And it's like he can't get over it, so he's got to tell you about it again. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. It's amazing. It's a daily miracle. Every morning, they get up, and every morning, she's got to walk over to that bowl, and she watches the miracle happen again. And think of this picture right here. There is drought that has just riddled the land. There are people dying of starvation. The place is just as bleak as it possibly can be. And here in this little cottage, there's an oasis of people clinging to the word of the Lord. Nobody ever gets a bad deal by believing God. The devil will lie to you. You'll have all these thoughts of, man, I tell you, you might believe a few of the promises, but you believe that one right there, and you're going to end up in a bad spot. There's no telling who God might have you marry. You believe him for that sort of thing. There's no telling what kind of job you're going to end up with. There's no telling where you may end up if you follow the Lord. So believe on a few of these things, but you just got to be careful with God. You kind of take this standoffish approach and you're a little bit afraid to turn the page of the Bible. What's he going to ask next? Man, when you get to know God, how you can't. When I am my clearest, when I can see clearly, it's like the next pages can't come fast enough. Because you know the person. You know the person. Nobody ever gets a bad deal in trusting the Lord. So that's a thought for tonight. A call to... A simple life of daily trusting God through his word. God, I pray that you'd help us. I pray you'd make it real to us tomorrow. I pray you'd bring uh, verses to our mind. Lord, I know there's been times when you've done that. I think of Ephesians there where it talks about the sword of the spirit. When we're discouraged and needy and all of a sudden we look and there's a sword in our hand that the spirit's put there, some verse Help us to believe, God. Help us to believe. Thank you so much for the provision of belief that you have purchased for us through Jesus. We pray, Lord, you'd make it real to us. In Christ's name, amen.